This is the Freudian Slip, the Identity Theft Resource Center's podcast where we talk about all things identity compromise, crime, and fraud that impact people and businesses. I'm James Lee, the COO of the ITRC, and welcome back to part two of our two-part episode on identity crimes in black communities. Just to refresh everyone's memory, the ITRC has been engaged in a multi-year, multi-phase program we call Identity in Practice in partnership with the independent research group Black Researchers Collective. Supported by LifeLock, a gin brand, Synchrony, and the Wells Fargo Foundation, the first two years and two phases have tackled a very simple question with a very complex answer. Why are there more Black victims of identity crimes compared to the general U.S. population? In our first episode, we explore the broader issues of identity crimes identified in the research. In this episode, we're going to discuss some of the specific findings resulting from quantitative and qualitative research, including focus groups in Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Chicago in cooperation with local community groups. Most participants were victimized by strangers, but a large minority said they were victimized by someone they knew, including a significant number of family members. Re-victimization was also prevalent in the three cities where focus groups were conducted. For those who experienced financial loss, most lost at least $500. More than half of participants across the focus groups expressed emotional and psychological impacts after becoming a victim, as well as challenges accessing financial accounts, securing tax returns, obtaining identity pins, and dealing with the impacts of reporting identity fraud. Here to talk about the research again is Jill Roberts from Clarify, a community support organization in Philadelphia that helped organize the focus groups in that city, and Jordan Pressinger, a researcher from Princeton University and a one-time intern at the ITRC. And as always, we are joined by the ITRC's very own CEO, Eva Velasquez. Welcome back, Eva. Glad to be back, James. Jill. Happy to be back, James. And Jordan. Glad to be back here with everyone. Well, you all shouldn't be such strangers. Um, <laughs> uh, we're we're going to pick up our conversation. So, in, in the in the first part of the conversation that we had, we talked about in broad terms the issues that were sort of um, surfaced by this research and how everyone viewed the findings and and uh, their surprises or maybe there weren't surprises. So. Now I want to turn to, let's talk about some of the specifics, and but more importantly, let's wrap up with what do we do with this now that we have this information? Because remember, we started from a point where there really wasn't a lot of information on which to base good decisions about how to improve the services that we offer to uh, Black communities, because we now have quantifiable data as well as we have great uh, anecdotal information from focus groups of what what people are going through their experiences. And that that does lead us to making some uh, service improvements, I'm sure. Um, So let's start here with the thing that, to me, jumped out more than anything else and is probably one of the thornier issues to solve, but it is such an important finding. And that is 40% of the people who participated in 
the various studies, both the quantitative and the qualitative, so the focus groups and just the regular survey, it was perpetrated by a family member. And the most common response was, I couldn't take an action that was going to be detrimental to that person. Because if I did, it was going to alienate me from my family. It was going to cause other sorts of issues. So it became very much an, uh, um, a discussion around how to emotionally deal with identity crimes as well as the financial impact as well. So let's start with that particular finding. And I'm going to turn to you, Jill, because you're dealing with people who are coming to you seeking financial help at Clarify. How does, how does that finding sit with you? How, does, does that reflect the reality you see? And if so, uh, how prevalent would you say that is? I would say that the finding does not surprise me. I will speak from experience in Philadelphia where um, we've seen many things that black families and communities have had to band together. You know, we have a long history of things like redlining. So the, the people saying, oh, you can't buy a house here. So I think what it did was things like that would create strong community. But a family member, I mean, this is your, your lifeline, right? Because we all have to, we're supporting one another. And I think those familial connections are so strong in the black community. Um, not off topic, but you, you look at family reunions, giant family reunions. It's amazing when you black it t-shirts weekends. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's amazing. And I, I made an assumption that only black people did this. Maybe white people do it too. So, but it's a really strong bond. Um, one thing I would see in Philadelphia that I didn't know was happening until I was doing some other work prior to coming to clarify was that families who had to um, utilize subsidize subsidies for housing or food or anything would put homes that they owned in children's names because you could only have a certain amount of assets to qualify for the benefit, the public benefit. And people would say, oh, if you have a house, if you own a house that may have been owned by your family, you know, your parents or your grandparents, it was considered an asset and you would not be able to get benefits. So they would put a house in a child's name. In Philadelphia, water bills, water, stays with the property address and the person's name on the deed. So you might turn 25 and turn around to go get a credit card or something, and there's a, a, a water lien on the house or maybe a judgment has been funding. Like, what is this? Well, it's tied to, to a house that is you're deeded to, even though you didn't buy it. It was just a way that your family could access public benefits that they needed, whether it was a temporary thing or long-term. So, you know, that idea that somebody who 
was your support network, if you will, also took your identity and either opened a credit card or you know put your name on something on a bill. It's it's real, and I I could I could only imagine the struggle of trying to reconcile that because when you have your identity stolen or fraud, the first thing I say is go to the police. I can't go to the police if if it was my brother that did this to me. I'm, I'm going to protect my family. So I think that was, and that came up in some of the comments that were shared in the the research, the focus groups here in Philly. You know that idea of you know you don't snitch, you don't tell. You've got to protect one another. Um, and I think that is uh, right. It's it's in line of what I would expect to see or hear. We did see that exact same response across the three cities where these focus groups were conducted, Philadelphia, Atlanta, and Chicago. Um, Jordan, you've studied trust in low income and uh, in communities of color. Um, Does this finding in any way surprise you or how, how prevalent do you think this is? So I don't, I don't know if it surprises me or not, partly because going back to how we started uh, the first segment of this podcast, um, we, the data on these things isn't that great. Like we don't have really good nationally representative data on identity theft experiences in, you know, black community or, or the core communities of color. And so uh, I don't know if I had an expectation about, you know, how prevalent um, familial fraud would be uh, in this community. I can say that when I speak to practitioners in the space, a lot of them say anecdotally that, that their practices deal a lot with familial issues. Um, but it's a, yeah, this is a pretty high number. Um, And I think it speaks to a lot of bigger issues that we could talk about. So one of those is uh, going back to my first experience or or the first time I heard this um, was encountering a report on child identity theft when I was actually out with all of you in San Diego, reading about how people who were poor used their children's uh, information to be able to keep the lights on, for instance. And... So this points to, you know, identity theft. We tend to think of it in some ways as this nefarious crime that someone commits against you. But in cases like that, it's it's a strategy for coping with poverty. Like in some ways we could ask ourselves, you know, is it what do you do when you can't keep the lights on or you can't pay for housing or you can't feed your children, you know, do you, you try to get resources wherever you can to meet your most basic needs. So some of these instances may be attributable to that. I, I feel like there was one quote in the, in the study where someone confronted their parents because of a utility bill that was in their name. Um, so it, it speaks a little bit to, you know, the experience of poverty and, you know, the strategies that people seek to go to, to, to meet their basic needs. It also speaks to me, um, this issue of um, not being able to report on people in your community 
is not unique to identity theft. Um, so in that sense, it's not surprising to me because a lot of relational crimes, if you would, you know, uh, incidents that are between two people, including, I'm thinking about like sexual assault, for instance, the research in that space shows that people don't want to report somebody because they see it affecting relationships. It, it harms people that they care about. It harms, you know, their connections with, you know, their kind of friends of friends connections, all of this. So I don't think it surprises me too much. Eva, what's your take on this? Well, it didn't, it didn't surprise me. And that is because of all of the conversations that I've had with victims just across the entire spectrum. And um, it was a little bit more um, unilaterally supportive of not wanting to get a family member in trouble. But that, that kind of conundrum exists with, with just about every victim I talk to. And I, I, I think about um, this one woman who uh, I talked to at length a couple of years ago who let me know that um, she was the reason that she was struggling because the system that we for remediation and recovery that we have set up requires that you report this as a crime and it requires that you be truthful in you know do you know who did this or who could have gotten a hold of this and because these are honorable people of course they could lie and say i have no idea but they don't feel comfortable doing that in most cases they they're honorable people and so we have to we really do have to balance how we ensure that we don't elevate friendly fraud, which is where people do this on purpose. Criminals just say, oh, I'm a victim um, in order to uh, perpetrate identity theft versus the people who truly didn't know it was happening and are uh, victims, but it happens to be uh, they do know the perpetrator. Um, but this particular woman told me, I'm damned if I do and damned if I don't. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? She goes, well, this is the second time it's happened. We talked to my mother when she did this about seven years ago, and she said she would stop and wouldn't do it again. And we handled it as a family. We all came together, paid off the debts and the bills, but it was never reported. And then she said, well, now half of my family has said they will never talk to me if I report her. And the other half has said they will never talk to me if, again if I don't. So talk about what do you, you know, I mean, what do you do with that? And at the same time, trying to figure out, she's she just got married and was trying to figure out how she was going to purchase a home. And I don't know what the answer is to the process changes that we have to make, but that's the, that's the conversation. This is the information and the data that we have now to support the conversation to have with all of the people associated in this space that help to make these uniform processes so that victims can uh, remediate and recover their identities. At the same time, we don't have the unintended consequence of increasing identity fraud and identity crimes in, in other areas. It's just a small thing, you know, yeah, yeah. just a little thing. I'm, I'm going to, swerve us a little bit here, but I'm going to ease this transition because you mentioned the re-victimization um, because the, the, the mother had done it before. 
one of the findings in this study is a very high rate of revictimization. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make a distinction between whether it was a stranger who was the perpetrator or was a family member, but just the the in excess of 80% of the participants in the three cities had all been victims more than once. So here's the swerve. Um, what does that tell us about the resources we need to make available? Because Jordan, I know one of the, you, you also made the comment about um, uh, resources available and in uh, one of our uh, email exchanges, you even pointed out that the reliance on online resources for self-education and how that might be a contributor into uh, what's going on could also be a, a part of the solution. So let's talk about what is it we need to do now to help the victims as they, as we find them today in a way that is culturally aware. We know we have this phenomena um, that you don't necessarily see as much in other uh, communities around uh, the reliance on family and friends for help the reliance on, in some cases, your own perpetrator uh, who's committed the crime. So how do we begin to assimilate all these various factors into a different way of helping people prevent and recover from an identity crime? So with that massive question, I'm going to imbue each of you with godlike powers <laughs> and, and you can solve this problem. So, Jill, we're going to start with you. Okay, so if I can um, take my thunderbolt and make this all right. Um, I think one of the things, and I, I, I want to go back to the, the familiar, the familial um, fraud that can be th identity theft. And um, I've, I've done a bit of work here at Clarify, and just we're paying attention to things like this now a little bit more and in a different light. And I took part in a wealth equity um, roundtable, and someone crafted, and it was great. It was an intern, just so you know how important interns are in this world, um, who came up with the term structurally constrained choices. So, for instance, you take your child's, you know, personal identification to keep the lights on. Because if you don't do that, you can't feed that child. And those are structurally constrained choices that people who do not have wealth equity end up in. And it is really challenging to figure out how do you excuse that? How do you take that out of the equation when we go to fix this? You have to, our policies and procedures and all of this is go to the police, press charges, all these things. Well, it was a structurally constrained choice being made because they couldn't keep the, the lights on. Do you, I want to put my family member in, in quotes around this in prison for that? No, I don't. But what I do want to do is take that into account as we look at solutions, as we look at some of the other things that push people to this um, systems that break down like breaches of securities and things like that. That's a whole nother podcast, I'm sure. 
but I do think that there needs to be education, trusted resources that are able to provide the education and also the solutions and solutions that are not necessarily punitive. I mean, one of the people in one of the focus groups said, basically, I had to prove that I was who I was and the police doubted me. I can't get anyone to believe that I was victimized. Well, wait a minute. We can't, we can't victim blame here. So we need to figure out what those policies are or how we manage helping people solve these issues. I think one of them is really solid information on what identity theft is and what it does. And when I say this, I mean, I'm talking like three big bullet points and accessibility to that information and that trust, those trusted resources in the community. I, you know, you talk about going, people going online. I was massively impressed because that's the last place I go for anything because I'm sure that they're like taking all of my information and spewing it out to the dark web. And before we know it, I'm not going to have a credit or anything like that. Or I have to pay for it, you know, to protect my, you know, identity and, and remediating those things that are barriers too. you know, uh, these services lock up your identity and da, 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 we'll send you a report for the low, low price of however many dollars a month, a year. That's not accessible or call each or deal with each credit organization, social security and any other place where your personal information may be and tell them to freeze all of your information. And then don't try to get your driver's license renewed because then you're, oh, this has been frozen. And it's really, we've got to reduce barriers. We've got to make it accessible and we have to get the information out to people. We cannot make this, how many hoops can I jump through to protect myself? And also, you know, really having people understand what identity theft is and it may be hard, but there has to be some kind of way for the communities, the black community to say, I'm going to have to report or I'm going to have to do something and have it be a safe space. And it, that's, that's going to be a hurdle that I don't know, even with godlike powers, I could um, surpass. Well, it sounds almost like a, a start with a public service campaign about, you know, just, just saying while this, Hey folks, while this may seem like a viable option and we understand it, here are the long-term consequences of that choice. Even that, just giving you the information that it isn't as easy as it, as it appears. It, it doesn't have no effect, you know, in the future. I mean, to me, that, that would be a good place to start. Eva, you're absolutely right. And it's also who's delivering the message. You know, who is delivering that message? And is it, you know, a, a... it's not punitive. We're not talking about it's not fear mongering. It's informative. It's the here's something you need to know, because we can't to your point, we cannot uh, be or we should not be judging, uh, you know, a parent for making the choice to keep the lights on um, because that's a need that they have for their family. Um but we do need to let them know, hey, this may seem like a really accessible solution in the short term, but it does have long-term consequences, and we need you to know that. 
Jordan, I want to ask you to to weigh in um, in in your research in your analysis of of the available information. Are there are there any solutions that just immediately rise to the top, and are there there ones that since you've been imbued with godlike powers that you that you would add to that list? Well, I want to start by pointing out a problem that we haven't talked about that I think highlights the way I think about solutions. And that's that um, the reason why we ask people to do things like police reports, taking taking the simplest answer um, that I've encountered uh, working with people on the the kind of, you know, in banks and in other organizations that are on the other side of these efforts to resolve it is because they they question the credibility of people saying I'm a victim. You know, when you say I'm a victim, people on the other side wonder whether you're making that up to get out of your responsibilities. You know, you took out a loan and now you don't want to pay it back. And, you know, I think sometimes that is disingenuous, that it's just an excuse for not having to, as an organization, to take responsibility for a loss because of, you know, fall in for fraud or something like that. And so pinning it on the victim. But if, if it's about credibility, uh, then these barriers are something that we, we really have to think about what it means to, to use data to make decisions about people. And when there are issues that arise, how do we assess who's responsible for that? Because that's what, that's what these credibility debates are, is, you know, can I trust you over the data that I have? To really get to your question, James, about what we should do about this, I think for me, the, the fundamental question that arises and that arose in this study is who's responsible for personal data, especially when things go wrong. So consumer, the consumer education approach in many ways treats it as if it's consumers that are responsible for that data. And I think the, the familial fraud that came up in this study provides a great starting point for asking that question, you know, who should be responsible? Let's take the case of a child. You know, you're, you're born into a family. Your parents presumably get access to your social security number long before you even understand what is happening in this world. And they get your birth certificate and a lot of other important information. So if consumers are responsible, we should ask ourselves, should a baby be responsible for their information? Like, can they protect against their parents misusing that information? And obvious, I think that's a, a fairly, there's a fairly obvious answer to that. But then we could say the same thing. What about government agencies and banks and other businesses that have our information? Are we, are we responsible for protecting that information? You know, what does it mean when information is really, for information to be useful, it has to be shared and disseminated. Otherwise, like a social security number wouldn't be valuable unless it could be used by different parties to know who somebody is. So I really see, uh, you know, I think that consumer education can teach people common sense steps. So don't post your social security number on Facebook, you know, or or. Uh, other platforms. Um, and it can make resolution steps clearer. Like, what do you need to do if this happens? That's a lot of uh, the great work that ITRC is doing. But when it comes to 
preventing and resolving this. I think this is happening because we live in a world and, and operate in an economy that depends on personal information being circulated widely and fast. So I think that we have to talk about systemic approaches to a systemic problem. You know, since we've already talked about some of the other systemic changes and the the research shows us how important it is to have folks um, getting support from their community, we need more peer support for victims. And there just aren't that many programs. And I do feel like we need insurance providers and carriers to cover that as a covered benefit. So we need to build more availability and we need to see this as a as an important part of not just mental health care, but health care, and it should be a covered benefit. We've proven that, that a, an issue exists statistically, so we've got to do something with it. And that's literally phase three of this multi-year project. So now we will be developing new programs, new ways of assisting uh, the members of Black communities who are victims of identity crimes over the next um, year. We'll be testing those out, be working with groups like Clarify in Philadelphia, as well as groups in Chicago and Atlanta, and also, we believe, in in some other cities. Um, So we'll be talking about this again, but I want to thank each of you today for for having this conversation and uh, certainly appreciate uh, all of the work that each of you are doing to help victims of identity crime. So thank you, Jill. Thank you, James. And I really look forward to phase three. (laughs) And thank you, Jordan. Thanks so much for having me on. And as always, Eva, thank you. Oh, this was such a good conversation. I am so looking forward to future solutions. If you want to learn more about the Identity and Practice Report and the research findings about identity crimes in Black communities, Download the report at idtheftcenter.org forward slash publications. In two weeks, we'll have details on the data breach trends for the first nine months of 2023. You're going to want to stand by for that one. In the meantime, join us next week for our sister podcast, The Weekly Breach Breakdown. Until then, thanks for listening.